we would be honored if you would join us. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers, where the vast majority of us have survived. That's right, something big happened here. And I'm just going to leave it at that, because that's all it needs to be said, because we're not a political show. We're, we're fun. We're geeky. We are everything that that is not about. So we're just going to ignore that. It happened. We're moving on. That said, hello. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've introduced the show twice, apparently, hello. Yes. There's a third because rule of threes, right? Got to have right. three. Got to have three. <laughs> I mean, unless we go seven. I mean, show. we could go seven. Yeah. For those of you joining the show, welcome. Hey, there it is. There's four. You've now had your fourth <laughs> welcome. It's like second breakfast and third breakfast and fourth breakfast. Hey, we got to need a, We need a fifth breakfast. So welcome again. <laughs> so with that said, let's move forward. Uh, this show is going to be a show that I have no clue how to start. So I'm just going to hand it off to Alton because that is what it's all about because he is going to run tonight's show. You know, I, I've had the pleasure of knowing Alton for like in terms of really knowing Alton for over a year now. And one of the things I have long appreciated about our dear Mr. Alton is what an insanely creative yet well-balanced game creator he is. And when I say insane and well-balanced, I'm not talking about his mental health. I'm talking about the outcomes of his game design decisions. This being an all things nerdtastic and game related podcast, it seemed only fitting that we take a moment to pick the brain of the genius himself. Alton, <laughs> oh, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. And thank you for saying nice words. Uh, most, most of the time I, I work in the background for games, helping people test and, and things like that. I, I've actually not been credited on many games yet. Uh, though I hope that 2021 will change some of that. I'll disclose more about that when I'm allowed to. Uh, so, but, yeah. In terms of how you got started in game creation, I'm, I think we could always go back to like some point in our childhood where we started crafting the game or crafting the narrative. What would you say was the moment when you knew that this was something you were good at or this was something that you loved? When did you hit that point, that passion point? Yeah, so um, growing up, and this is going to sound like a really weird lead-in, but I need you to go with me on this, okay? Let's walk the path. I, I loved playing with marble tracks and like little gear toys and things like that. The point of it was putting these disparate things together to do something cool, right? And the point was always to get, to the, get the marble to the end of the run or turn the most gears in the weirdest way or whatever the case may be. But it was about putting all of those different pieces together and seeing how they worked. Right. Um, and uh, growing up, uh, you know, I, I lived with uh, my grandmother and some of my aunts for a little while and a number of other things, um, uh, you know, raised in a village, so to speak. And so because of that, I spent a lot of time playing games uh, with my grandmother and with my aunts and had a lot of fun with that. And it always kind of stuck in the back of my head, even though, you know, we started with simpler games uno and othello and things like that it always kind of grew and similarly when i'd go to my grandparents there was always just a little more and a little more um but i always was just fascinated by this concept of being able to use simple mechanisms things that i could control and understand but by putting them together i could do really cool and complex things 
Um, and as I started to uh, get into my, my teenage years and started to expand out and become a little more social, um, I got into uh, Yu-Gi-Oh, competitive Yu-Gi-Oh, in fact, which was a thrill and a half. Um, but I loved the concept of being able to put together decks. And this was back in the early days before people really were starting to figure out what a metagame was and what were the best deck designs and things like that. Right. Um, but again, being able to take all of these disparate cards that all have their own abilities and their own things in isolation, things that might not even be very good, but when you put them together, they do something great. And that really started me down the path. Well, fast forward a couple of years later, and I, um, I decided I wanted to get into magic. I'd left Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, started to play a little bit of Pathfinder. I moved down to Florida and I'm gaming with a group of guys and they say, hey, we wanna play D&D. But two of the gentlemen that were there had some mental disabilities that I was really, really worried. They can't do a lot of basic math. There's no way that I'm gonna be able to put a complex character sheet in front of them and make it work. But one of my buddies had Descent, the first edition board game, which for those of you who haven't played is basically a dungeon crawler game that has tiles that slot together, really basic, easy to understand character cards and dice where you're counting symbols and figuring out whether you succeeded or failed instead of doing complex things. So we started with that. And then they said, we wanna build our own characters. So I went online and I figured out how they'd engineered all the character sheets and built a little thing in Excel for everybody to start to play with that. And it just kept growing and growing until we wanted to do our own adventures. And so then all of a sudden I was in charge of creating adventures and I was using other people's mechanics to do that and found that there were a lot of limitations in first edition Descent that wouldn't allow me to do the things that I wanted to do. But I still needed to be able to explain them to two people with mental disabilities. So I was met with that juxtaposition of, I want complex outcomes that allow players to have a lot of choices and do interesting things, but I have a limited tool set. Um, yeah. and, I, and whatever I do has to be simple. And after I started to figure out how to make that work, um, the things that I had been struggling with in Pathfinder up until that point as a DM and a GM finally opened up to me. It was like my brain just lit on fire and I finally saw all of those things click together, just like as a kid, as I was playing with the marble run and trying to figure out how to get it all around the couch and over the coffee table and everything else. Now it's like, okay, I have all of these things that are related either mathematically or mechanically. And if I put them together in the right order, even if my players don't understand the whole machine as an entire thing, they get this piece and they get this piece and they understand that when they put them together, something cool happens. And that's how I got started. Um, since that point, I've owned two game stores, worked with multiple board game design guilds and um, you know, uh, unsuccessfully kickstarted an RPG of my own and have since gone back to trying to be a student, trying to work with other people um, to really help them grow their games. And through that process, I've had a lot of really cool opportunities to talk with really intelligent, creative, amazing people and again, I find the greatest joy for me is in, we have a problem we need to solve. It needs to be simple. Even if what we build on the underside of everything is complex, whatever comes out has to be easy to understand. Nice, well said, well said. So you've been on the game design side 
for years and years now. And you've had the opportunity. We've talked about this on the show previously. You've had the opportunity to develop your own tabletop RPG. You've developed Mm -hmm. your own card games before. Um, But normally jumping to a brand new IP or a brand new game, is that is that typical when traveling down the game maker path or is there like an alternate path that tends to be either a better or a more common approach when wanting to become a game designer? Um, yes and no uh, to diverging paths and being able to jump between properties and ideas and mechanical differences, right? I think everybody has those one or two games that are very near and dear to them. Um, but not many people take the time to stop and think about why they like those games. Mm-hmm. And in-game design, to utilize other people's terminology, right? Um, uh, we, we talk about bottom-up and top-down design. And those are two very different things. Uh, foundationally, to super oversimplify, bottom-up design is saying I have a mechanical idea upon which I want to build world and lore and theming and everything else. And at the end, as long as all of those mechanics are good, the theming should be able to help those mechanics shine, right? Top-down design is saying, I love the way that this feels. I love the way that this looks. I love this lore or this bit of story, or I need the game to be able to evoke this type of adventure in somebody's mind. And you start from there and you build up the mechanics underneath it to meet the needs of those story or design elements. Um, And both approaches are equally valid depending on what you're trying to achieve, as well as the way that you think as a game designer. And very skilled game designers are capable of doing both, but still typically find that their best work comes from working one way or the other. And that's really the first thing is, okay, what is it that I like? So that then gives you your two primary paths. Um, For example, you know, Dan, I know you're an author. Obviously we've been doing dungeon crawlers for 12 years now, and there are probably things that in your mind are distinctly thematic and unique that might be interesting as game design fodder. Do you find that to be the case? Oh, always. I mean, even when running games, you know, running adventures for D&D and various other role-playing games, there's always themes that are really fun to to play on. Uh, Even Mm -hmm. in writing, you can find themes that are, you know, people enjoy or love. Um, Even movies, watching movies, we see those themes come up time and time again. I mean, how long did we, you know, how long of a period where there, it just seemed like one zombie movie after another was coming out after another, Oh, we had TV series, including zombies. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it was the vampire and werewolf craze. Um, yeah. So we definitely see those themes quite often. Uh, so, so kind of springboarding off of that, you've now written a few books, published a few books, yeah. um, more on the way. Do you find that what got you into those books was a love of some of those thematic elements that you already found or for you, was it the other way around where you had the general plot points of the story that you wanted to tell or a base level character in mind who needed to go through an arc? So, I mean, to be honest, the, the current theme that throughout all my books, dragons. I mean, there mm-hmm. is a theme. I mean, every book I've written so far has dragons in it. Yeah. Um, so there is that theme. Uh, you know, there is the plot points. There is the overall story um the that changes i mean my main series definitely 
there's dragons, but at the same time, the hidden kind of underlying theme in there is also to, you know, a brother's love. I mean, this, the main character, the reason that the whole first book happens is because my little brother is in danger. I'm going to move heaven and hell to go rescue him. Yeah. You know? And so you do have a lot of those, you have the major theme, the underlying theme, and, and we see those in games too. I mean, we definitely mm-hmm. do. Um, you know, one of my favorite games, Shadows of Brimstone, you know, you got the theme, Cowboys and Demons. Mm-hmm. How cool is that? I mean, yeah, I, I love Westerns. I grew up watching Westerns like crazy because, you know, uh, it's what my grandpa watched. My grandpa always was watching John Wayne. You know, mm-hmm. it was either a John Wayne Western or it was a John Wayne World War II movie. Mm-hmm. And so the majority of it was, of course, Western. So I grew up like the old West was really cool. I mean, eventually I would like to write a Western type book. I would mm-hmm. have to have some sort of fantasy element to it because for me to, to work, but, um, but at the same time, those aren't really popular. You know, mm-hmm. even Western movies aren't really popular. So kind of branching off of that games are precisely the same way. Especially if you're doing this type of top-down design, right? If you know that you want a dragon in your game, you're going to start and think about, okay, how do I represent that dragon mechanically? Yep. Um, For example, when you look at RPGs, right? One of the things that most players don't really intuit on the surface, they don't think about it because it just feels right, is if I'm doing something like fire or magic damage, splash damage, things like that, I'm probably rolling multiple dice. If mm-hmm. I'm attacking with a sword, I'm probably rolling one. Even if, you know, a great example is magic missile, right? If I'm using a great sword in Dungeons and Dragons, I'm probably rolling a D10. If I'm shooting a magic missile, I'm rolling three D4. The damage possibilities between the two are nearly equivalent, but one is represented mechanically slightly differently because the designers understand this concept of what is the player actually doing inside the world itself. And so if you're designing a game with a dragon, that might be somewhere that you start. If you want your game to be represented with dice, you might try with a whole bunch of different dice mechanics and say, okay, how do I emulate the feel? How do I emulate the thematics of this? Is the dragon, and the next question then would be is, is the dragon on the side of the players or are the players fighting the dragon, right? Mm -hmm. And you start to build out some of those story elements in your head, even if it isn't a fully developed, fleshed out script like you might have for a book or a film or a comic book or anything like that, you're still thinking about that progression of, over the course of the game, what do I want my players to experience? What do I want them to feel? What do I want them to think? What do I want them to emulate within the game itself? And as you start to go through that journey of what you want your players to do over time, you begin to build out the structure underneath that to make that happen. Now, the biggest flaw that people start to fall into when they start with top-down design is not enough experience with other games. Even if you have an excellent idea that you love and you're devoted to, people are gonna feel that devotion, but if they sit down to the table and it takes them 45 minutes to read the rule book and figure out what's coming next, your game, may or may not be achieving the thing that you want it to do. And so just like if you want to learn how to write stories well, you need to read a lot of books and listen to a lot of authors. You need to be going out and playing games. Similarly, on the opposite side of things, if you're starting with a bottom-up design, Krebs, I know you're a programmer. 
right? <laughs> so when you're sitting down because you have a task to accomplish with your program, what's the very first thing that you do? I'm kind of glad that you asked that question because as you talk about top-down design and bottom-up design, we have the exact same terminology in software development. I often will talk to my students and I will pose the philosophical question, how do you eat an elephant? And I will entertain a number of answers, but the philosophical answer that we're aiming for is one bite at a time. What happens, and, and I see this with students all the time, I will give some lab and you know it's, it's meant for freshmen. It's not overwhelmingly difficult, but they look at the problem as one giant obstacle to be overcome in one ginormous bound and then they start freaking out because they can't figure out how to do it in one enormous move. They, mm -hmm. they want to see all the code all the time immediately. And that's not how it works. And this is very similar to game design too, where um, you have to do what's called decomposition. You have to decompose the problem. It ends up that every large problem, whether it is a, a, a piece of software or designing a game, every major problem is the sum of its smaller problems. You can look at game design and then you can say, okay, I wanna build a tabletop RPG. And if you just say it like that, then mm -hmm. it's profoundly enormous. But what are the typical things that go into a tabletop RPG? Well, you have characters, you have combat, you have uh, strengths and weaknesses, um, and you have to have some form of win and loss. There have to be some basic conditions. And when you look at each of those problems, each of those decompose yet again. And so a character is typically the sum of their stats, their um, extraneous data, their abilities or skills or perks or buffs and debuffs, however you want to look at it. And as you look at each of those categories, they decompose again. And so the idea is, can you get to the atomic problem, which is the smallest singular piece. And once you get to the tiniest problem, if you can solve that, and if you can solve all of its neighboring tiny problems, you can take those solutions and use them to solve the next problem up in size. And so when mm. we talk about top down and bottom up design, top down is exactly what kind of, kind of what you described in software. It's look at it from the big picture, start with like the largest problem, then break it down into the next level of problems, take each of those, break it down to the next level of problems and so on until you hit atomic. Bottom up is think of the smallest possible starting point. What's the smallest singular thing you could do? Start there, develop that. Then go take that solution upward and do the next smallest thing that you can think of. Um, and it ends up coincidentally, and I think pragmatically, that there's really no developer that does just one or the other. They kind of have to be able to do both. With game design, it's not very different. In your head, you have this image of the end goal, but you have it helps to start with the smallest problems first. Use those mm -hmm. solutions to fuel the solutions to the next largest problem and so on. Yeah, and, and you're precisely right on there. So, you know, my day job, I work for Die Hard Dice. I'm their director of strategy. I spend a lot of time building systems and spreadsheets and trying to help people solve complex problems, right? And so there are times where I use both aspects of top-down and bottom-up design to reach my end goal. Um, but typically I'm starting with data in and a concept of where I need to end up. And I'm saying, okay, what's the first step that gets me a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer, right? 
Um, but similarly, within game design, one of the great places that I always recommend, if you love RPGs, pick up your favorite RPG and design a weapon for it, design a monster for it then, okay, now I want to introduce a new class or a new feat or a new mechanic, something that's coming in. If you're a magic player, right, take all of that common language that you already know about magic and build a card. Then think yes. about, okay, what are the things that are cool about this card? What are the things that I like about this? Let's build a mechanic around that. Now let's build a second mechanic. Now let's build a third and a fourth and a fifth. Now I've got five mechanics. How do these things connect? and start to see what those common threads are. And that will begin to suggest some of the theming, some of the overarching objectives and things that can go on. A great example of this, um, even though games like Uno and Monopoly and Sari, et cetera, are, are really panned, they are mechanically solid, solid games, okay? Even if you don't enjoy the theming or the outcome or the competitiveness or the risk that goes into it, when you look at the core of what they are, Uno, I can explain in one sentence. My objective is to get rid of my hand, nice. right? Yes. So as a game designer, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to say, okay, so I need to get rid of what's in my hand. That's the objective that I'm giving to my player. First thing, what are the resources that I'm giving them? Second thing, how am I giving them opportunities to interact with decisions and mitigate risk? And the third thing is, if I know that then my player has this objective of being able to do it, what are the tools that I'm going to give them to assist in that task? And what are the tools that I'm going to give them to interfere with other people being able to do the same thing, right? Yes. And so for Uno, those four questions can be answered very, very easily. The resources that I'm giving them, I'm giving them cards, okay? And those cards have some characteristics about them. They have numbers, they have colors, and in some cases, which we'll talk about in a minute, maybe I'll include some kind of special effect or something like that. Um, nothing too gaudy or fancy, just, you know, something interesting, spice it up. We'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> so then the mechanic that I'm going to give them to be able to do that is you can play cards on top of other cards that share a same color or a same number, right? Okay, awesome. That makes sense. So what are some things that I'm going to give my players to be able to help them reach their goal? Well, I already had this idea of maybe some kind of special card. So I'm going to give them reverse and skip, right? Those are two things that are going to be able to help them manipulate the board a little bit, manipulate their ability to be able to interact with decisions and to be able to make risks. Um, even And the other thing that I'm going to do is because they have the option to play um, on top of other colors, but only if the number is the same, I'm also gonna give them a wild card so that if they need to change the suit to something that's more advantageous to them, they now have a couple of different tools to get there. Right. So then now, how am I going to prevent other people from being able to do the same thing since this is a competitive game? If you're talking about something like an RPG, I'm saying, okay, how do I prevent a monster? How do I prevent the DM or how do I prevent whatever the ethereal thing to be overcome is from being able to do that? In Uno, I'm giving you draw twos. Okay. Reverse, which we already established as a tool to help me manipulate the board. I can also use as a way to screw other players. And similarly, skip serves that function, which means that skip and reverse are very strong mechanically. That's the glue that's gonna bind my game together. Well, I like this idea of forcing other players to draw cards. What if I put that onto my wild card and now all of a sudden we got a stew, right? Nice. Like, and, and that's really the design process behind Uno. It's not super complicated and crazy, even though on the surface, we see a lot of moving parts as players because we're just in the game experiencing it. Good game design accomplishes that 
by being able to present the rules in an easy way that my players are going to be able to understand that allows them to interact with all of those things that are going on to be able to accomplish the objectives and the goals that I want them to be able to accomplish. I love it. Now, there's one more piece of Uno that I have not discussed because with top-down design, we start with theme, right? With bottom-up, we need to end there. So now I'm thinking to myself as a game designer, okay, I've got all of these things that get me to be able to eliminate my hand. I have ways to be able to interact with my opponents. I have ways to be able to manipulate the board. Uno conceptually does not have a super crazy strong theme. In recent years, they've added a whole bunch of special rules and you can play digitally and all these other things. But there is a core piece of theming that's in the basic game, which is I need to tell my opponents when I have one card left, but just telling them I have one card left is lame. So what's the <laughs> coolest way to say one that I can think of? I'm gonna say Uno. And we're gonna put it in big bold letters with an exclamation point on the back side of the cards. And that's gonna feel really good, right? That in and of itself is theming. It's not crazy intense world building, but it is theming. And if you're designing a game for the first time and you just wanna be able to accomplish something, pick up a friggin' deck of playing cards and do exactly the same thing. I love there, there's a, 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 a you know colloquial game called Mao which is, uh, you know, yes, but if you win the hand, you get to add a secret rule, which is great. It's an excellent um, opportunity to work with people who want to get into game design because it makes you think, okay, these are all of the things that already exist. Now, how do I take advantage of these existing mechanics to be able to create something cool? But starting with those base level things and figuring out how to put them together is gonna give you that basic understanding of, did I meet my objective? is this texturally interesting, meaning that my players have the ability to make choices and interact with the game? And was I able to communicate to them clearly what they need to do in order to accomplish those goals? Now, I, first of all, excellent, excellent explanation and guidance and, and using a common example that is a fairly basic game, but you can really tear apart mechanically and explain. I love that, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. I wanna take it back just a couple steps. You mentioned briefly, like if, uh, if there's an RPG that you love, start simple, and design a weapon, design mm -hmm. a piece of gear. Um, and if it's, or, or if you like Magic the Gathering, if that's the kind of game that you like, then take the common vernacular, the rules that you like best, craft a new card. Uh, I, I kind of want to go down that road a little bit more because especially as an instructor myself, I believe in the power of exercises. I believe in the, in the power of practice something small, get mm -hmm. better at it, combine it to your tool set, then practice the next smallest thing. And, and now you've got a toolbox, right? Yeah. What are, what are some exercises that you would suggest? And I'm going to make, I'm going to direct this uh, at Dan as well, that you would suggest to help people uh, in their game design endeavors. Yeah. Um, Dan, do you have any thoughts first? Or would you like me to go? You can go first and then I'll go. Yeah. So one of the great things, and obviously I'm biased because I own a game store and I work for a dice company, all these other things, but dice, pick up a set of dice. Even if they aren't RPG dice, you just get a box of D6s or you pull out your Yahtzee set and you start to begin to play with them. Um, because all of the underpinnings of risk management are mathematics, but people are garbage at intuiting percentages, <laughs> right? And honestly, just picking up a single die and rolling it and getting a feel for what does one in six actually mean? Now let's add a second die. What does two in six actually mean or one in 12, right? Like starting to figure out all of these things begins to make sense, but then you start to say, okay, I'm seeing the interaction between these two dice. What's an intuitive game that I can begin to make? 
And this is another thing that I've done, you know, with, with um, teenage groups and things like that, is I give them five dice and I say, come up with a game with the person next to you, right? Because on the basic level, I'm looking at those two dice and I'm saying, okay, whoever rolls the higher number wins. That's the obvious, like, this is what it is. If you roll a die and I roll a die and I roll a six and you roll a five, I wanna win. Okay, so how do we make that interesting? What if we both roll a die and we get the same number? Now we have a tie. That gives us a choice, right? As a game designer, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can either just have them roll again until there isn't a tie or what do I do when there is a tie, right? What are some things that I can do along the way? Or another thing is we know that this is a, an object that has even weighting on all six of its sides. So what if instead of me rolling against my opponent, I'm trying to guess what they roll, right? I'm saying, okay, if you roll a five, I win. If you, if you roll anything other than a five, I lose. Well, now there's some risk management that I have to think of. So how do I begin to balance that out? Well, let's say odds are evens. Hey, now we're doing coin flips, right? Or hey, let's say one, two, three, four, five, six, but five, six beats one, two. Now we're playing rock, paper, scissors. These are all games that we intuitively learn as children. Um, and, and they're all underpinned by the same mathematical principles, whether I'm making a fist or whether I'm rolling a four, these are conceptually the same thing. But thinking about how to make these things interact becomes interesting. That's what I like where you about get Lizard that. Spock. That's exactly right. What I like about that is that the exercise that you're suggesting, this idea uh, is to grab something that is commonplace, small, and simple in its own um, in its own capabilities, in its own affordances, and come up with creative ways to use its output. So we're not even talking about like, how do you come up with a weapon of mass destruction for uh, rifts? Or how do you come up mm -hmm. with the zombie cure in Dead Rain? Or how do you come up with a way to seal the Underdark forever in d and It's not even that. It's mm -hmm. here's some dice. You can find it anywhere in just about any board game. Come up with your own rules and start with just one. And then yeah. see how it plays and then add on top of that. Dan, do you have an exercise that you would suggest to people as they go through their game design endeavors? Well, I mean, it to be honest, it sounds a lot like uh, how I teach world building. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, there's a couple conferences that I've taught world building at, and it's really you break it down to each simple component. And as you break, you know, go to the smallest component, you know, for like me, you know, the first question I ask when I'm teaching, you know, these guys, okay, is our world like Earth or is it completely different? Is it an alien planet? You know, you start with the simplest questions. And, you know, once we have that decided, okay, we move forward. Okay, what is the terrain like now? You know, we have that. Mm -hmm. What what lives here? You know, and so it's kind of like that, you know, all I'm saying, okay, start with some dice. I mean, that's kind of the beginning. You know, are we going to use dice? Are we going to use cards? Um, are we going to use a spinner, you know, that's going to tell yeah. us what we're going to, how our movement's going to go? Um, so I, I like that because... I mean, really creating anything is the basic thing. You start mm -hmm. with a small component, add another, add another, and eventually you have a story or a game or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as you're going along, okay, hey, yeah, okay, this is how we're going to move. We're going to roll dice, and now what are we moving? Are we moving bricks? Are we moving people? Are we moving a little token? Mm -hmm. Are we moving a top hat or a thimble? I mean, really, that's probably how they came up with that. You know, oh, yeah, no, this little... Yeah, that 
this wooden chess piece doesn't look cool. So let's do some pewter figurines that look like random things you'd find around the house. I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're hitting it. You're hitting it right on the head, right? The same way that you ask, "How is my character? What does my character need to overcome? Yeah. What does my player need to accomplish by the end of the hour that they've sat playing this game, or the 15 yeah. minutes, or the five days, or whatever the case may be? It's 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 exactly the same thing. And the best game designers in the world understand both the principles of story and the principles of mathematics yeah. because they are so so connected. What yeah. we're doing is pattern recognition and helping people to bridge those gaps. Well, and, and the other thing is if you run into a problem, I mean, this is the same thing. I, I've had people ask me, well, what happens if you run into a problem? Like you're in the middle of your story and now you just can't make it work. Well, you know, I had that, you know, my first book, uh, I had this cool idea. I was going to have the, the guys in the story jump in a boat and they were going to ride the boat down the river to, to the town that they were supposed to hit. And then I went, oh, crap. This is Ireland. Um, that river is flowing out to the ocean, the opposite direction <laughs> I want them to go to. So what did I do? I sat down and started asking myself questions. And I wrote down those questions and I started answering those questions. And I came up with a, a better solution. And it's the same way with a game mechanic. If you're stuck, you start asking questions. And as you go through those questions, you keep asking yourself, you're going to solve the problem. Um, and that's why I don't believe there's anything such as uh, writer's block. It's just the fact that you haven't asked the right question yet. And as you start writing those questions or asking those questions, you're going to figure it out. Exactly. Until you start asking those questions, it's like your brain is stuck in this, oh, I'm stuck. Mm -hmm. When really you're not, you just haven't figured the way out. That's what it really is. You're, um, you're hitting it on the nose. One of the big things that I tell people as I've participated in a lot of these panels and discussions and as I'm working with people who are stuck in the middle of their game trying to figure out how to make this damn thing work. Sorry, this darn thing work. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it is, is I, I tell them paint on canvas and I say the same thing to my guys at work all the time. You, a lot of people get frustrated because they haven't painted the perfect sunset. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at a white canvas... <laughs> Why in the world are you upset that you that you don't see a sunset because you haven't put paint on it? And sure enough, that first stroke that you take is not a is not a sunset. It's going to look really really weird and feel really awkward. And and when if you stop right there and look at it, you're going to say, "I have no idea how to get this to a sunset." Well, put another bit of paint on. Take a little bit of paint off. You know, do whatever well, it needs to do, but just do it and ask the questions and do what you know, work until it works. You know, not only that, let's, let's look at, you know, there's some game, really big game designers out there that have put a game out and then they're like, oh crap, this mechanic's broken. And then they release an update or an expansion that fixes that. I mean, mm -hmm. Wizards of the Coast version three came out, uh, you know, D&D &D three came out. It didn't work as well as everyone had hoped. Players, you know, complain, they send in some suggestions and we got 3.5. You know, it's, it's okay if it's not perfect. Yeah. Coming out, it's, you can make tweaks later on. Uh, players, even if it's still functioning, players are going to find workarounds, make it work for them. And then while you're making an expansion or an addition that helps improve on the mechanics or even just put a rule out like hey you know house rules if you it doesn't work for you don't use it but you know yeah. or use whatever you want 
I, I don't know anyone that actually plays by the actual Uno rules. Every, <laughs> every home I have gone to plays Uno a little bit differently. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're, I know several people where, you know, if you have the same color and the same number, you can throw that down immediately. But in the Uno rules, you can't stack. You can't stack plus draw two cards or draw four cards. It says that in, in the, their rule books, but I know tons of families that do that because then, haha, look at that person. They got, they had to draw 12. Um, Cause yeah. it just kept going around uh, yeah. and that's okay. And, and there's a, there's a Taoist principle um, that I'm going to paraphrase, but in essence it is perfection is death, right? At the mm-hmm. point at which there is no more to do. There is nothing that can be improved, nothing that can be changed. There is no more purpose. Right. And you've hit on something that I also think is an excellent, excellent exercise that was going to be one of my parting gifts to everybody is take your favorite game and make a friggin' home roll. Right. Um, Yeah. I was just going to add to that because I think perfection is a, is a, a word that we have completely missed the mark on. Um, Cause I know due to religion, stuff like that, I'll stay from the religious part away from that, but due to that, we have this idea, uh, what perfection is you know perfection is unattainable it really is we we live in an imperfect world we're imperfect people uh it's it's just not something we can ever obtain however the root words for you know perfection that where how we've translated in the hebrew bible means to mature or reach the end it has nothing to do about being in this glorified state or anything all it means Mm -hmm. is hey we're maturing or we're reaching our, our end point, our goal. So in my idea, when we say, hey, we're going to develop the perfect game, let's let's think of it as we're going to reach our end goal. And that end goal is to put out a game that people enjoy. It doesn't need to be have, be flawless. I, mm-hmm. it, that's, in, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Every, it's going to have a flaw or someone isn't going to exactly like it. There, you know, to make the perfect game, everyone in the world has to like it and play it all the time. That's not possible, in my opinion. Well, and even to augment that, for your very first game, build a game that you enjoy. Yeah. And, and keep working at it until you don't enjoy it anymore. Yeah. Because as soon as you do that, right? First off, the sense of accomplishment of completing my very first game, and it was not a good game. But being able to actually see these little prototype cardboard pieces that I'd cut out and put in my hand and it functioned. It was garbage, but it functioned. That felt awesome. Yeah. And then I never played it again because <laughs> as soon as I'd played it once and saw that it worked beginning to end, I was immediately like, this didn't work and this didn't work. And then I started to think about the next design and the next thing. And that's okay. I still have those pieces back in my office. Because it's a testament to that concept of, I, I put the paint on the canvas yeah, and I did the best that I could. And my first attempt was the best that I could do. Yeah. And that's okay. And now, you know, I've, I've gone and I've worked on a number of other games, some of my own, some for other people. And my favorite part is the play testing. When I'm sitting down with players and I'm watching those aha moments happen, but I'm also asking, okay, what was the aha moment? 
What was the thing that connected for you? And I take that little tidbit and I take it to the next thing. And even now when I sit down and DM, not every session that I DM is absolutely perfect. There are nights that I'm off. There are nights that I don't feel it or that I can't put the themes together the right way or achieve everything that I want my players to do. Players aren't playing up to your expectations. I mean, there, there literally yeah. is no such thing as a perfect game. I, 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 I hate when people try to evaluate. Like there's no such thing as a perfect book. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as perfect anything. Um, but I mean, I, I will come back to the point of the blood, sweat, and tears you put into creating something. It is scary. It is scary to design this, to have this child of your own creation. Now, when you have a child of your own, it's yours and your wife or yours and your partner. But when you're doing something creative like this, uh, especially if you're doing it by yourself, it's your own. There's no one else that can, that has a hand in this. Um, you know, if you're co-creating, then it's a little bit more like a child, but even then it has, it's so much more personal than having a child of your own. And then you're putting it out there and there's fear behind that because like, okay, are they going to accept this? Because in this weird, odd way, we think, okay, if they don't accept this, they don't accept me. Mm. But when even one person comes back and says, oh my gosh, I love this, this euphoric feeling you have yeah fantastic and amazing um you know i'll tell you this i'll tell you this right now there is somebody in the world who is going to look at your baby and think that it's the ugliest thing they've ever seen oh yeah truth guarantee but i'm also going to tell you that there is someone out in that world who's going to give your baby their first kiss and and he's going to come home all twitter painted and you're just going to feel like you've done everything for that child and that is also worth it yes No, my, my first one-star review on my first book, man, that was a drop kick to the nuts. I mean, I felt like Cartman <laughs> came over with steel-toed spiked boots and just rochambeaued me. Hmm. Um, but then there was a 17-year-old boy that had read the book and came up and was just so excited and was just like just going nuts about the book and seeing all these details and like, oh, is this going to be in the next book? What are you going to do with this and that? And that, man, that just that changed the perspective. I mean, yes, some people enjoyed it and, and I appreciate that, but having someone like a, that Uber fan, it's like, really? you liked it that much? And that felt amazing. And when you get that, when you have someone come up and, and be that way, I mean, I know there's been several other authors that we've had on the show that have talked about where, you know, someone has come up to him with their book in hand and said, man, this got me through one of the darkest times of my life. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Um, that just shows the power of it. And, you know, I have a, I have a lot of games. They're off. They're over in the corner over there. Um, I know Alton has a ton of game. I know Krebs has a lot of games. There are a lot of times where, I mean, especially now, you know, with me going through my divorce, I'm hanging out with friends playing games. Those games are getting me through this dark time and it's enjoyable. I mm-hmm. can step away have a laugh, enjoy, and I and forget about things. It's not that I'm just running off to fantasy land. It's I can take a moment and enjoy what's going on. And those game designers are responsible for that. Because of those games, I get to do that. And so, that's, I'm, I'm sorry, Elton, go ahead. No, I, the, the only thing that I was going to add to that is to say, and, and that's really one of the primary objectives that you should be striving for, yeah. is build something that you love that you know is going to inspire feelings in other people, good and bad, and acknowledge that up front. 
because the people that are going to love it are going to love the stories that they tell, the memories that they make, and the things that it carries them through. You are going to be in their heads, pulling the levers, flicking the switches, helping them be human. And that has to be okay. Well, I mean, how many people hate Monopoly yet still play it? Like how a many million people, and three. How many people play Risk yet still play it? It, it? Even if they hate it, that doesn't mean you've made a bad game because more than likely some of those people are still going to play it because like, dang it, I'm going to beat this game. <laughs> I mean, you just described every Demons and Dark Souls game ever made, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I often joke. I mean, here's the thing. I actually like the Souls games, even though I haven't really beaten like any of them but um i still like them and i still get them uh and yet i'll joke with people about like oh dark souls that's the game you play when you hate yourself you know things like that but you're right um just because it, it just because they have a certain experience with it that maybe they equate to a negative emotion does not mean that they're having a negative experience Mm -hmm. um they are experiencing what the game intends to evoke in them they're facing a challenge that they've never faced before and in many situations much like I and mean, even just the physical game of golf which is surprisingly more challenging than i think a lot of people <laughs> realize before they try it for themselves um no it's it's no. one of those games that like i mean yeah like uh j just again give like a, a real world analogy here you know you go to the driving range i've been to the driving range i think twice in my entire life and uh oh, i'm sorry three times three times and i'll sit there and i'll make the same error over and over again or at least the same set of mistakes and so i'm slicing the top of the ball or you know i'm just I, i'm doing a poor job and then there's that one out of a bucket of like 60 balls there's that one that hits the sweet spot exactly right. And it just sails with the beauty of, of a dove taking flight in front mm -hmm. of an awestruck audience. You know, it's, it's just, it's that perfect moment. And that one successful mm -hmm. drive gives you that euphoria where you say, yeah, I'd come back and do this again. I do that. Yeah. And there are and games let me to tell do you, that too. And let me tell you the other side of that coin, right? Let the negative feedback come. Yes. And, and take it honestly. Take it sincerely. And well, uh, wait, wait, before you go too deep down into that rabbit hole, that's exactly the next topic I wanted to touch on in the mm -hmm. few minutes that we have left. Uh, we've talked about you're going to make bad stuff. You're going mm -hmm. to make good stuff. And then the organic question that bubbles to the surface is, how do you know? How do you know what you've made? <laughs> um, and the answer to that is play testing. You mm -hmm. have to play test. And I, I used to teach this course uh, for the video game de uh, degree program called uh, Topics in Game Development. And playtesting is something we discuss. I would like to touch on that subject with Alton and Dan. Um, describe, describe some of the most important elements in playtesting. What does it look like? What is the job of the game developer? What is the job of the playtester? Things like that. How do you playtest effectively? And you've play tested a lot of games. Let's start with you. Okay, fair enough. Sure. <laughs> um, I mean, effective play testing, it's just play, the, play through the game in, yeah. and see what doesn't work, what does for you, and mm. then give constructive feedback. Um, I think the worst feedback you can ever give someone is, wow, this sucks. Okay, if it sucks, why? Explain right. why. Break it down. Because just saying it sucks doesn't help. The purpose for playtesting is to give constructive 
feedback to them so they can fix it. You know, it, this didn't really work for me. This is why, you know, the, the dice mechanics felt a little hokey. Um, you know, I, maybe if you, add, you know, I'll use an example. Uh, a good buddy of mine had uh, there. I, the game was called Shoot Your Friends. Uh, you, know, you had cards <laughs> when you had a, a match based on each car uh, set. Each set had a certain number, which meant the n- certain number of matches you needed. You know, some had two, some had three, some had fours. As soon as you had a match, anyone on the table had a match. You could grab the gun and shoot. And if you shot someone, they took a bullet. If they had three bullets, they were out. And I and I play tested. I'm like, this is fantastic. This I really enjoy this game. It's crazy, chaotic. However, there's no shields. You know what's going to stop me? I, I would love something to stop a bullet that I could have on the table that would protect me for a round or 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 a hand. And they're like, holy crap, we never thought of that. They put shields <laughs> in. And it made the game better because I explained, you know, I, I love this, but I'm, you know, if, if I'm not fast enough, I'm out of the game fast. I would love a mechanic in here that could maybe mitigate that a little bit. Um, so that was, that's an example. Um, if it's really, you know, it could be, maybe this rule is confusing. I don't really understand this rule. So maybe it needs to be explained better. Because so if what I'm would you not, say? What would you say is the job of the play tester in that role then? Well, it, it, again, constructive feedback to help the game designer why this isn't working for me, and give some suggestions. You know, suggestions are always great. I this isn't working because I think maybe you need an extra die. This isn't working in my case. I think you need some shields. Um, I'm really confused with the way this is worded because when I read it, this is what I'm thinking, but I don't know if that's what you mean. Um, Break it down for them so that they understand where you're coming from and then they can chew on that, you know, and if they get enough people, six, seven people, then they can say, okay, Hey, maybe there is something wrong here, but if it's only one guy in 20, you know, it maybe it's just that one guy, but that's okay. Sometimes it could just be that one guy it changes something. Yeah. That's a great point. So then Alton on the flip side of that, as, as play testing is occurring, and if we assume that the play testers are doing a good job as play testers, what is the job then of the game designer in that moment? I have through my experience, both of watching excellent game designers play test, but also through my own flubs and problems along the way, established three basic rules that I do in every single playtest. The first thing is, before I sit down, I need to figure out how to say all of the rules in that rule book in as few words as possible, but with exactly enough words that the intent gets through. Yes. Um, That is a very difficult skill that even some of the best game designers in the world cannot write a good rule book. And there will be situations in which you need to go to somebody else who is capable of writing technical documents and actually spit out what you are trying to say into something more concrete and easy. Especially when you've sunk a thousand hours into a game and you know it inside and out, you don't think of what happens if the players tie because as you've played it in your head you've said to yourself a hundred times well i'm just going to give the advantage to the player who's attacking 
right? You've said that, but you haven't written it down. So figure out what those things are. The second thing is, is that as you hand it over to the play testers, shut up. The yes. only time that you should speak up in a test, period, is if it has now turned into a non-game situation because a rule wasn't understood. Now, understand what I mean by a non-game situation. Not, not the game as intended, but actually the game has stopped. <laughs> there is nothing happening because nobody understands what to do next. Okay, and you should be taking notes on exactly what it was that stopped the game, whether that's something that's unclear or a rule that wasn't included, or there's a new scenario, some weird random convergence of events that you've never seen before, right? Be aware of those things, but shut up until they actually happen. <laughs> because you will find that players who don't understand what is going on will make up their own versions of the rules. They will interpret what is happening to the best of their ability. And you may find that what they come up with is better than what you had originally planned. Yeah. But even if that isn't the case, you don't know that it's going to grind to a halt until it actually does, which means that you might be ignoring a critical failure in your game by jumping in too early and not allowing it to compound and get worse and worse and worse until you actually see what the real problem is. Some of the, the worst playtesting experiences I've had is where, yeah, the, it, that exactly is happening, where people are just jumping in. Oh, yeah, no, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. Well, I don't know. Let me figure this out. Let me play it. Mm -hmm. you know, because at that point, I feel like they're forcing it down my throat. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not, at that, I'm not really playtesting anymore. I'm just playing it the way they're telling me to play it. So... Yeah. Um, and then, I, I like that. Just sit back, let it happen, pay attention, you know, maybe have several people in your team that are, you know, monitoring a table, yes. taking down notes, um, or even, I mean, if you can video, so you can review that. Uh, the one thing that has always been great is, you know, there, there's two ways I, I've had it. Either one, there's something that you can write down your notes, or two, they kind of do an interview. Hey, mm -hmm. how did, what did you think about it? And you, you say that. And that's, and that's precisely my third step is as you are doing all of those reps and you need to do a ton of repetitions on this. I mean, just to put very basic math in front of you, okay? If you only have five things that can interact, okay? That's 10 unique outcomes. But if those things are randomized in any way or under the player's control in any way, that doesn't mean that you're playing 10 games and seeing how it turns out. Okay, that means that you're probably playing between 50 and 60 games before you're able to see every single outcome at least once. Okay, you're, you, you need to be thinking about hundreds. And that is an intimidating thing to see, but I promise you it pays off in the end. Um, but uh, but, but the, the third big thing is that after every game, even before I ask any other information about, did you have rules questions or do you feel that thematically this made sense? What are improvements that you want to pieces or theming or whatever else, right? Before any of that, what was your absolute favorite thing that happened tonight? And phrase it exactly like that. Because you may find that there are things that you didn't realize are key cool aspects of your game that your players picked up on. And you need to chase that feeling and that moment because that's a hidden strength that's going to set your game apart. 
And the second is, what was the worst experience that you had tonight? And you need to figure out how to mitigate that from happening ever again. Even if you can't do it perfectly, or even if you recognize that, hey, if that's the worst thing that happened, that's something that I'm willing to take. You need to be conscious that that's a thing so that you can create mechanisms within your game or within your rule book or even in the design of the outer box to help people decrease the likelihood that they're going to have a feel bad experience. If you see on the in the rule set itself a thing that says if you're a first time player consider this right or if you're playing this specific faction this is the type of strategy that you should be pursuing i guarantee you that is because the game designer had an experience where a player sat there for two and a half hours and said i had no idea what i was doing the whole time everybody else was attacking <laughs> with their ships but whenever i tried to do it it didn't work well it's because you're the faction who was supposed to be building mines the whole time dummy yeah if they're a first time player they don't know that Right? And that doesn't mean that there's something intrinsically wrong with the game, but it gives you an opportunity to add a mechanism to help people understand and get going easier. Yeah, I mean, there's some, some games that have been are complicated and they're like, hey, as you know, as your first time playing, let's walk you through it. This is you know, a guide. These, these are the cards we suggest you select. These are the steps we suggest you take. And that's a suggestion. You know, there are some players out there that they need that. Other players are just, they're going to crack the box up and read through the rules and go for it. And that's okay. Great example of that. And I know we don't have a ton of time left, so I'm going to be very brief on that. But a, a great example of that is a game called Root that came out a couple of years ago. Extremely popular. And in the few years that it's been out, it's already had five revisions to its rule book. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a game that is almost completely asymmetrical. There are almost no shared components between all of the players as to what's going on on the board. But the thing that made it work was first off, the theming was on point. And second off, even from the first version of the rule book, there was a guide that said, here is your first two turns, do this exactly in order. So that your players could at least start to get a little bit of an engine going, but also begin to pick up on some of the key game concepts. The game itself is fine. The first edition of the rule book is unintelligible. And if you don't have people who understand what's going on, it is miserable to play. But it's not because the game itself is bad. It's just because you needed to help get your players down the right path. And being able to do that is specifically a result of, of exactly what we're talking about. So when the, the last few minutes that we have, um, starting with Elton uh, and moving, actually, no, I, I take that back. Starting with Dan, starting with me, then Dan, then Elton, because I think that makes more sense. Um, let us give one final parting uh, piece of wisdom, right? One final word of wisdom. Uh, for me, in all this discussion, man, you guys nailed playtesting so well. One thing I would say to just add the cherry on top of everything that was discussed about playtesting, do not be afraid to be wrong as a designer. The play testers will help you see where you've been wrong even when you thought you were right. And the best thing you could do while the play testers are thinking out loud and they're, they're asking questions and coming up with their own solutions, as long as they're verbalizing and you're making notes, the best thing you could do is don't get defensive. Don't, don't get defensive about people criticizing what you've done. Instead, look at what they're saying, look at their experience, listen to the feedback they're giving, and then figure out how much of that you can fix. 
or maybe they're having exactly the experience you intended. That's fine, but don't get defensive and don't shut them down. Just listen. Dan, what is the parting piece of wisdom that you would like to give future game developers? Take the chance. You know, take the chance and put pen to paper or whatever it takes to put your game together. Um, you know, the biggest step you will take is that first step. You know, it's scary. It's scary to do it. Uh, writing a book is scary. You know, I've wanted to do it since I was a kid and I've come up with every excuse in my head why not to do it. You know, it, there is, there's every excuse in the world not to do it. Take the leap, do it. And even if you fail, that's okay. You learn one way not to do it. I mean, that's the greatest thing about Edison, you know, messing up the, the, the light bulb a thousand times. He learned a thousand and one different ways not to do it. And then the one way that was successful, that's awesome. Same thing with writing. I mean, there are several very prolific writers out there. They didn't publish their first book. They had five, six, 17, 20 books done that will never see the light of day. They weren't that, they weren't, they didn't make it, but they learned how not to make it. And then when that book hit that was successful, that's all that matters, you know? And you may, you may make a stinker, that's okay. You learned how not to do something. Paint on canvas. Yeah. So just do it. Right. I mean, and even, you know, even with paint on canvas, like you've said, even if it doesn't look like a, a sunset, it may look like a sunset to someone else. And that's okay. Truth. Alton, sum it up. What is the parting piece of advice you would give future game developers? The number one thing that I'm going to say to game developers, and this is something that I have to remind myself of constantly not only with game development, but with other things that I care about very, very deeply. Chasing your passion is a garbage strategy. Don't do it. Develop your passion. Understand that because you like something, there is potential in it. But the first time you do it, it's not going to turn out the way that it is in your head. Just like the whole concept of paint on canvas, you got to do something. You've got to do something repeatedly. You've got to bash your head into the wall so many times. <laughs> and get so much bad feedback from players that you're going to feel like this isn't going anywhere. And you're absolutely correct. If that's where you stop, that's all you're going to get. But if you take the time to understand that your passion is worth developing, it is worth taking the time to learn to do it right, which means doing it wrong until you don't, then you are going to end up with something that is beautiful, something that is inspiring, something that is starting to live up to your expectations because your best work still hasn't happened yet. And that is also okay. Um, one of the key things, it's one of the reasons that I love RPGs and it was the guiding principle behind my first RPG that I wrote was Worlds Without End. I can't design every world and every idea that could possibly come out of another player's head and that's okay, because if I give you the tools to do it, you're going to be able to tell stories I can't even imagine. And if you take the time to develop that passion, you're going to find that the people who you once idolized are now your friends, are now your companions, are now coming to you for advice. Not because you magically woke up one day and were the best game designer in the world or the best musician in the world, or you have the best podcast in the world or whatever the case is. It's because you put in the time and develop that passion instead of hoping that one day you'll reach out and it'll just be there. 
Truth, absolute truth. And all of you crawlers out there, there's going to be a new question up on our Discord server. If you haven't already, please join the Discord server. Uh, Dan will tell you how to do that in just a moment. But the new question is, having designed some element of a game that you love yourself, probably some tabletop RPG element, what was the best thing you ever made? And what was the worst thing you ever made? We'll put those questions up on the Discord server. We cannot wait to hear from you. All right, so we're going to wrap this up. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, join a Discord server. Uh, you know, there's going to be a link. There'll be a link uh, on the post for this for this episode. Just click on the link, go there, set up your account. That's the easiest way I'm going to say it because otherwise it's going to take a lot of time. So, you know, we hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope it's been informative. Uh, clearly, we know a lot about game design. I, I apparently know a lot more than I thought. Uh, I surprise myself even sometimes. But with that said, we're out of here. Dungeon Crawlers, put that friggin' paint on the canvas and tell your story, whatever may come. And no matter how many times it takes, no matter how many times you don't get it right, in the end, I am sure that you will be epic and you won't suck. Remember, the Force will be with you always. Crawlers.